Good morning, everyone. My name is Nathan Van Hodnes, and Randy has asked me to share my faith story. It is not typical. I come from a science background. In college, I studied math and physics and learned about the actual doing of science through several undergraduate research projects. This predisposes me to certain views about the world that your stereotypical Christian does not hold. I also have deeply felt beliefs on political and social issues that put me at odds with common perceptions of Christian politics. And that, in a nutshell, was why I was an atheist. As I formed my adult identity, I felt as if I had to choose sides. I felt that I could either believe the things that I believed to be true, or I could believe in God. For me, it was an issue of choosing reason versus unreasonable faith. For me, it was no contest. I saw nothing that science could not explain, and I found that I was strong enough not to need God as a crutch. I rejected my childlike faith, and I faced the world on my own. I was a good person, and I couldn't fathom believing in a God that would punish me for not recognizing his authority. It just seemed silly. And that approach worked fine for me up until about 2005. I was in rural Arkansas pursuing my ideals of social justice by teaching underprivileged high school students math and science with the Teach for America program. A little later in the year, once the weather got a bit nicer, Kara, the biology teacher, needed a running partner, and I found out very quickly that I needed her. And so we ran. We ran every day, and about a year later, we ran away together. But there was one small hitch. Kara was Christian. Clearly, I wasn't. Our premarital counselor told us not to get married because of that piece in 2 Corinthians about being unequally yoked. We got married anyway because we deeply loved each other, and neither of us could bear to let the other go. And here's the personal part. It didn't work. Within six months, our marriage was in tatters. I won't go into details or specifics, but I will tell you this. For the first time in my life, I had a motivation to seek God. I had a reason to believe. I felt I had a new choice to make. I could either believe the things that I believed, or I could save my marriage. So I did what I do. I studied. I searched. I got on the phone with Randy and met him at his office for a few chats after work. I read books. I argued in my head with C.S. Lewis and Dinesh D'Souza to see if unreasonable faith could be reasonably squared with my life's experiences. I couldn't. I couldn't get talked into faith when I didn't take as a given that there exists a spiritual plane unprobable to science. It was far more likely to me that Jesus was crazy and the apostles were liars than that there existed a man who was raised from the dead. Seriously, dead is dead. But for the first time, I searched with my heart. I prayed to what I didn't believe in. I asked for help in my unbelief. And one day, when I asked God for something, he gave it to me. I silenced the voice in my head that said this was going to happen anyway. And I just trusted. I just trusted in God and thanked him with the entirety of my heart. And when I did that, the strangest thing happened. God smacked me upside the head <laughs> and woke me up. I, I wasn't dreaming I wasn't hallucinating, and I didn't see him or hear his voice. But in my heart, I felt the Holy Spirit. I knew God in my heart and in my head. 
The closest I can come to explaining it is this, and forgive me for the analogy, I'm a math person. Sometimes, you, you learn higher math by doing proofs. Sometimes the proof of a theorem is too hard and you don't get it. So you sit down with a pencil and paper, you write the steps out, you fill in all the little mini proofs, all the things that the author skipped um, when they were trying to write the chapter to keep it brief. But then there comes a point when your head just clicks and the truth of the theorem's proof nearly blinds you. Its beauty is manifest and it is obvious. That feeling, that snap of understanding is but a shadow of what I felt on that day. And so I believed. I remained myself. I didn't need to check my brain or my politics at the door. I still disagree with many issues, but now I disagree with them from the inside of the church. But the larger point is this. If you don't want to believe, my story has little for you. But if you do want to believe, if you do, if you are a seeker, no matter how far away you feel you are, I stand as proof that you will find God and that God will bring you home. Thank you. Well, speaking of C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis once wrote, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Lewis wrote, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations are mortal. Cultures are mortal. Arts and civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals. It is immortals with whom we joke and work and marry and snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. Immortal horrors or everlasting blessings. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. It is concerning these destinations that I want us to consider as we look today in the book of Revelation, the New Testament book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 uh, is the story of two destinies, two destinations, two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and there is the kingdom of Satan. 
I mean, we can see those two kingdoms as we look through the entire book. They're emerging, they're surfacing. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of immortal horrors, the kingdom of everlasting splendors. There's the kingdom of the true trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then there's the kingdom of the false trinity, Satan the dragon, Satan the sea beast, Satan the land beast. Two kingdoms, kingdoms in conflict. In the kingdom of God, you are marked, uh, tattooed, if you will, on the forehead with the names of God the Father and God the Son. In the kingdom of Satan, you get his mark, his tattoo. You get the mark of counterfeit completeness, the mark of incomplete completeness, the mark of the beast, 666. Two kingdoms. There's citizenship in Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem, and then there's citizenship in Babylon, the fallen city. The fallen city that symbolizes all that is opposed to the purposes and plans of God. Two kingdoms, two destinations, two cities. They they have nothing in common. They are mutually exclusive. And according to the Bible, you belong either to one or to the other. There's no middle ground. There's none according to Scripture. And Revelation chapter 14 is significant because these verses in this chapter, we see the end game. We see the final destinies of these two irreconcilable kingdoms. The kingdom of immortal horrors, the kingdom of everlasting splendors. And all day long, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. And so, and so I want us to look through these verses this morning. And what I want to do is um, I'd like for us to consider verses 1 through 5 first. If you've got the New International Version uh, or the church, your church Bible, I believe it's on page 874. Um, you'll see there's three sections, there's three basic paragraphs, and it's subtitled The Lamb and the 144,000, and then The Three Angels, and then The Harvest of the Earth. I want us to look at verses 1 through 5 first, because that's, that's, that's the beauty of everlasting splendors, yes. And then we'll consider verses 14 to 20, sobering verses about uh, immortal horrors, and then, and then a call for a decision in verses 6 to 13. So that's how we're going to proceed this morning. Beginning with verses 1 through 5. Follow along with me. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased. 
from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Verses 1 through 5. Now, you know, there's decoding that needs to be done here uh, because, uh, you know, as we've seen in the book of Revelation, I mean, John wrote in a particular style, a style of writing which is no longer existent today, but a style which is uh, fairly frequent and fairly prominent, say, between, uh, you know, 200 years before the birth of Christ and you know, 200 years after uh, the birth of Christ. And it's a style of writing. Uh, technically, it's called apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic writing. And it's very uh, graphic and image-saturated. And, and so if you, don't, if you don't have much of an imagination, this is going to be kind of hard to grasp. But, but this, is, this is very vivid. And, it's, and actually, it's resistance literature, you see. Because, because God's people are being called to resist the godless culture of their day. And so this language is very vivid and, and, and very symbolic. And so let's do some key, uh, decoding as we just kind of walk through these verses, beginning in verse 1, which says that this, this life that we're being called to, the life of everlasting splendor, is, is life that's in the presence of, look, the Lamb, the Lamb, and and that's Jesus Christ. That's who that is. I mean, not the counterfeit lamb that we saw in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. This is the slain lamb standing. The slain lamb standing is Jesus. And he's standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion in the Bible was where the temple and the city of Jerusalem stood. And this then becomes a symbol or a figure of the new heavens and the new earth. Zion The new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, all of these are are different names for the same destination, our destination, our destiny with God, with Jesus, who is standing, who is alive, and then 144,000, and with him 144,000. Again, (laughs) a symbolic number. And we saw this number in Revelation chapter 7. And it's symbolic for the complete community of God, 144,000. 12 squared times 10 cubed. 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament, the 12 apostles from the New Testament, uh, uh, the complete community of God, and then multiplied by 1,000, which is a com- 10 cubed, a complete number. No one's missing. That's what John is telling us here. We're all here when Christ's victory over Satan's insurgency is completed. None of God's people will be missing in action. There will be no MIAs in heaven. All of the believers will be there. Tomorrow, Memorial Day, military graves will be honored on behalf of those who have lived and died for this country and yet You may know of some who will be remembered, but with no grave marker, only in minds or journals or portraits. No grave. Why? Because in battle, in wartime, they were MIA, missing in action. But none of that will be in heaven. All the believers will be there, and they will be identified 
They will be marked by the names of God the Father and God the Son, marked on their foreheads. That is highly visible because they chose to follow Jesus. They made the decision, and it's in stark contrast to the end of chapter 13 concerning those who received the mark of the beast, the mark of counterfeit completeness symbolized by the number 666. Those who received the mark of the beast decided to follow Jesus, and they are not present, uh, decided to follow Satan, excuse me, but those who have the mark of God the Father and God the Son. They are celebrating on Mount Zion. And that's what verses 2 through 5 are about. It's a celebration. And it's a loud celebration. It's not a quiet one. Thus the roar, the roar of, of rushing waters and the loud peal of thunder. In John's day, the most powerful and intimidating sounds came from nature. And, and notice the music now. Now, the music was to the sound of harps, but you see, don't think Cranert. <laughs> because you see, in the Bible, see, we, we, often, we often want to impose our cultural images from what we see in our lives today to words that we see in the Bible, and that's where we can become very confused because in the Bible, you know, in the Bible, the harp was not the classical type of instrument that we'd see played in Cranert Center. No, 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 no. It, it was a festive, foot-stomping, toe-tapping instrument. Think banjo. Yes, think, don't think Cranert Center. Think Austin City Limits. Folks, there is going to be country music in heaven. That's it. And they're singing the new song. It's a new song, meaning it's a song of victory. It's a whole new day. It's a big new day. New song, new life, new heavens, new earth, new bodies. New bodies. And verse 4 describes the saints, describes the complete community of God. This is an interesting figure. We need to unpack this. Verse 4 says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Now, what is that all about? Those in John's day would have known exactly what that was about. That verse 4 is a, is a military metaphor. That's what it is. And let me explain when Old Testament Israel went to war, the soldiers completely separated themselves from their families and from their marriages in order to do the work of soldiering. Thus, they were battle ready. They didn't, they didn't go on leave in wartime. They didn't go back home. They stayed, they got the job done, and then they came home. And, and, and that's why, if you recall in the Old Testament, you remember when King David had his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and then she became pregnant with his child, and that's why David tried to cover up the sin by bringing Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, back home to spend some leave time with her so that the sin could be covered up, and yet Uriah did not. Uriah slept on the driveway of his house. He didn't go inside. Huh? And when asked about it, 2 Samuel eleven eleven says, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab, that's his commanding officer, that was his general, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. You see, 
The Apostle John is taking this image of total focus and total commitment, and he's, and he's just wrapping it up tightly in this, in this military image in verse 4. I cannot help but think that if John were alive today and he wanted to use the same military metaphor, I wonder if he would say something like this in, in uh, verse 4. Four. I wonder if he would say, these are those of the old guard who served in Arlington. Oh, okay, now we would get it. We would. The old guard, 3rd Infantry Regiment, the regiment responsible for guarding the tomb of the unknowns in Arlington, and then our minds would think about the training and the strict physical and mental requirements that have to be met to earn the privilege of guarding the tomb 24-7. A kind of commitment and a kind of training that led, that led to soldiers staying at their post when even in the year 2003, a hurricane slammed into Virginia. Those, those sentinels stood their post at the tomb of the unknown. That's how committed they were, you see. And the point, church family, is that heaven will be inhabited by citizen soldiers, citizen saints who have endured and persevered and who were fully devoted followers of the Lamb. Believers who are on the same page spiritually, who share the same passion, the same devotion to Christ. I mean, haven't some of us, I've heard stories from some of you about being on work groups or study groups where, you know, you're pulling your load, but someone else is in, is in the group. They're just kind of showing up and eating cookies and drinking milk, and you're doing their work for them, and not everybody's on the same page because you're pulling your load and, and, and someone else isn't, and that's frustrating, and to this Jesus, Jesus cries out, hang on, in heaven what you've longed to do most on earth will finally come true. You're going to have a perfect body and glorified abilities to worship and magnify and enlarge and express praise to God with no limitations whatsoever. And you will have flawless motives and infinite energy and unlimited time to do there what you've wanted to do most here. And you will be surrounded by millions and millions of believers who are as equally passionate and fervent about doing that as you are just hang on equal intensity equal passion equal commitment to follow Jesus wherever he goes we'll all be on the same page and Jesus will be at the center of it (laughs) I long for that day I long for that day being on the same page (laughs) that's heaven and that's why we exist church family We exist so that more and more families and marriages and singles and men and women and children can experience the joy of Christ that we read here in these verses. That's our destiny. And that is what gives us hope, especially especially in days like today. It's what gave those Christians hope when they were being hunted by the Roman Empire, when their godless culture and their godless government was pursuing them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it gives us hope today in our struggles. Listen, I hear about our struggles. I read our prayer requests every week, every week. And we pray over these. And uh, last week, you know, the brokenness is there. I, I, I mean, we pray over broken 
uh, relationships, broken uh, marriages, uh, broken and sick bodies. Uh, I, uh, and frankly, it fatigues me. It fatigues me. I, I get fatigued hearing about 39-year-old moms who get cancer. I mean, that fatigues me. And I'm not tired of hearing, I'm not tired of hearing it from you. I'm just, I get to get fatigued with the situation and I want, I, I want heaven. I want heaven. So I don't have to pray over sick bodies and sick marriages, you know. Don't you want that? And that's why we exist. You see, that's why we exist. And church family, we don't exist so that we can be a really nice, clean, neat, suburban, 501c3 tax organization. That's not what it's about. I mean, it's not worth it for that. It's not. I'm sorry, it's not. We're not going to the Dominican Republic. We're not going to Peru. We're not doing Jesus Days next week. Have you signed up yet? We're not doing that because, you know, we just think that we've got it all together and we want to have some, we want to, we want to pat ourselves on the back by means of some token service. That's not what it's about. We're not doing the weekend of service in October where, where hopefully we want to see 900 from our church family go out through the entire community the weekend of October 17th and 18th and just be Jesus. We're, we're not doing that because we're just, we just got our act together. We're doing it because Revelation 14, 1 through 5 is a real place and it's a real destination and it's a real destiny. And I want as many people there And we're doing it because there is no experience in this world that can give us ultimate joy or ultimate satisfaction. There isn't. There isn't. There is not not an experience or a desire in this world that can ultimately satisfy. And therefore, that means we were created for another world. And that is the world which is described in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, the world of Mount Zion with Jesus, with the Lamb, everlasting splendors that go on and on and on and on and on. That's our destiny. The fact of the matter is you were made for Mount Zion. All of this beauty, which, which sparkles like a diamond, um, is set against dark velvet of verses 14 through 20. Uh, the, the community of the redeemed in verses 1 through 5 is set in stark contrast with the enemies of the cross. Now then, Joel chapter 3, verses 12 to 13 Say, let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, by the way, literally means the Lord is the judge. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. 
Come, trample the grapes, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. I'm convinced that these verses were in John's mind as he wrote verses 14 to 20. Let's just take a look at these verses. John says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested one swing. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's about 180 miles. Mm. Sobering verses. Uh, Two harvest scenes, a grain harvest and a grape harvest. Uh, Two different harvest pictures, yet describing the same event to emphasize the certainty that this is going to happen. One day, Jesus, who came first as the sower, will return as the reaper, and he will cut down his enemies and harvest them. And verses 17 through 20 describe the gore of that harvest. The judge will one day gather these rebel grapes and plop them in the wine press, and he will hike up his robe and squish them with his own feet. And and the way wine presses worked back then was that when it was time for harvest, the, the, the grapes would be harvested, the ripe grapes would be harvested, and they once they were harvested, they didn't have refrigeration back then, so they needed to go ahead and process them, and they were plopped in what would be a shallow stone tray that was just carved right out of the ground, and the grapes would be just plopped there, and then the the vintage farmer, the vineyard farmer would then begin pressing those, I mean, with their own feet, and squashing them and and then it was a shallow tray so that then the the juice would then flow out of the shallow tray in into a a a stone carved a stone hewn cistern and this time it's not grapes it's people and we're not talking wine here the image is we're talking blood as high as a horse's belly, as long, as long as the north-south length of the nation of Israel, 180 miles. It's gruesome. It's brutal. And if read 
in isolation or out of context from the rest of the book of Revelation or the Bible for that matter, you would be tempted to protest, excessive force, God, excessive force. How cruel, how, how torturous of you to do that. And that would be, that would be gullible. It would be a very gullible perspective. You see, see, some naively assume that hell is where God deliciously sends those who once finally there wake up and smell the coffee and come to their senses, but now they can't get out because the door's locked, and so they spend all of eternity screaming their, their, their lungs out, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God, let me out. And a grudge-bearing God turns his face. Forget it. Now, that's... That's naive and gullible. It's inaccurate. It is. Who is in the wine press here? Who who are these in the wine press? Well, John's been telling us, and and he will continue to inform us throughout the book of Revelation. The ones in verses 14 to 20, they're the ones who have been savagely murdering the saints, the martyrs that are mentioned in verses 1 through 5. These are the ones... The ones in verses 14 to 20, they're the ones who have freely welcomed the mark of Satan on their lives. They want to be identified with Satan. They want nothing to do with God. They don't want to be changed. They don't want to be helped. They're the ones in Revelation chapter 9, 20 that, you know, after all that God has done just to wake them up, 9, 20 says they still did not repent. They still did not. And what we're learning about heaven and hell through the verses of Revelation is that in the afterlife, God simply gives us in the life to come what we've wanted most in this life. That's the afterlife. That is. And that's why Revelation 22 verse 11 says, let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. You you think people stop sinning in hell? Two destinies, two kingdoms. And if, as the Bible teaches, our souls will go on forever, then just imagine where these two kinds of souls will be a billion years from now. So you see, if the thing you want most in this life is to to make much of God, to worship God in the beauty of his holiness, if that's what your passion is more than anything else, then just hang on, friend, because in the life to come, you're going to get that. You will get that. And if the thing you want most is to be your own master and to be your own captain, then then the holiness of God will be an agony to you and the presence of God will be a terror from which you flee forever. See, See, someone put it this way. Someone said that hell is simply God's gesture of respect for human choice. We, We wanted to get away from God all of our lives here. Well, in the next life, God respectfully sends us where we wanted to go. Quite simply, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. C.S. Lewis once described hell this way. 
Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I really think we need to remind ourselves of verses like 14 through 20 uh, from time to time in order to keep our priorities straight. I mean, as a church family, just as we exist to to draw people to the beauty and splendor of Mount Zion, church family, we exist to help steer people away from the tragedy of verses 14 through 20. And, uh, and I don't know how it is in your working farm, but in the church's working farm here, it just seems like we're always scrambling to you know, get ready for one more talk and one more sermon and one more event and there's one more counseling appointment and, you know, who's going to lick the stamps and proof the bulletin and answer the phone calls and, and you know, schedule the classes and schedule the baptisms and, and get the nursery list. And, and, you know, running a church is kind of like a working farm. And, 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 but we're not doing this just to build a nice, neat, clean Southwest Champagne group of pristine Memorial Day citizens. <laughs> we're, we're trying to save people from this. From this, from, from, the tra- from the tragedy of the hell of trying to be your own master. And yet, how do we escape this? How do we escape this? I mean, do we escape this by you know, getting somebody up here who can just talk good? We escape this by having neat music? Is that, is that it? Is that what's going to do it? Unless the Lord acts. If the Lord does not act... How, how can we be rescued? Because you see, church, I mean, I used, to belong, I used to belong to the beast. I used to be, I mean, I was headed for the wine press. Verses 14 through 20 was once my destiny, and thank God, Jesus acted. Jesus acted. And, and you see, when he acts, see, Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all you who have learned how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say that, okay? <laughs> Jesus opens his arm to needy children, and he says, come, messy. Just come, just come, messy. Come with your wandering mind. Come overwhelmed with life. Come messy. Just come. And see, that's the, see, that's the message of verses 6 through 13 with these three angels. You know, giving a little plea for a last call. Come. Come. They are, they are proclaiming the eternal gospel to every nation, verse 6. They're saying, look, this world is done. This world is passing away. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Why would they say Babylon? Because Babylon used to be a world power. John may as well have said Washington. Washington. 
See, the Romans in that day, by the time John wrote these words, the Romans knew that Babylon, what was once the seat of world power, had just become a dusty village. A dusty, a dusty village. This was once the splendor of Babylon. This dusty village. And the fate of Babylon became the fate of Rome, the fate of London, the fate of Washington. Listen, this world will disintegrate. But God has acted. God has acted. And how? In love, through the gift of his own dear son, the Lamb took our place in the wine press of the cross. Jesus' blood flowed. Jesus took our place and took on our sin and died our death. He was thrown into the, no, he wasn't thrown into the wine press. He voluntarily walked into the wine press and he laid down and he was trampled. And his blood flowed not just 180 miles covering one country. But his blood flowed and it covered, what does verse 6 say? Over every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. God gave himself to save us from himself so that we can be with him and sing with him and serve him and love him and be loved by him forever. And if you don't want that, you're not going to want heaven. So what do you want? What do you want? Jesus promises that anybody who stubbornly insists their way, their right, Jesus is going to pronounce them wrong. And he promises that those who admit that they're wrong and that they need him, he, by his grace, will declare them right. The righteousness of God is only given to those who stand in the sinner's place. So now it's your choice. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, which is it going to be? All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. So what do you want? What do you want? Make a decision. Which side are you on? 